Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halperin. And I'm Donnell Alexander. You're listening to the Weed Week podcast. You can also subscribe to our free newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week California, and Weed Week Canada, all at weedweek.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. If you've got any feedback, write us. We're at hello at weedweek.net. So today, um, we've got a call with Chris Beals, who's the CEO of Weed Maps, one of the biggest and most controversial cannabis tech companies. They are both of those things. Um, he was surprisingly candid. I, I feel like I'm in this mode of asking questions people don't want to be asked. It's almost reflexive now. But he was very candid as we went through it, and you kind of stepped on and did some some tough questions, too. No, it's a, it's a really good conversation. Certainly, in California, they've said they're moving away from um, accepting advertising from companies on the illegal market. That's a major thing because a lot of people in California uh, presumably still find their dispensaries by using weed maps. So so the, the main controversy about weed maps is that they have continued to they're, – they're sort of best often described as like a Yelp of weed. And they were controversial because – for a long time. Well, they included everybody, right? Right. So they, Licensed or not. So they would accept listings and, and advertising on their Yelp-like service from dispensaries that weren't, weren't licensed. And that effectively enabled these dispensaries to stay in business, probably. And their competitors didn't love it. A lot of people find a lot of fault with them. So, you, you, you know, and now the company is becoming sort of a, a more mainstream technology company. They're... they're weaning themselves off of the, off of the illicit market off of the illicit market ads and you know chris sounds like a, a pretty serious businessman yeah he came in in march and he had a full plate having to deal with all this uh very candid though yeah it's a it's a pretty interesting conversation before we get to that let's talk about church yeah we remember we uh, we'll have to put we it on the show page but we had a christian um a Christian weed supporter earlier in the year. Yep. And church and cannabis are getting together in a very different way. So there was a story recently in the, the New York Times, and there have been stories about it elsewhere. Didn't uh, Amanda Chicago Lewis write a cool one for Rolling Stone? I don't know if it was in Rolling Stone, uh, but she did write, I think maybe it was in Rolling Stone. Another guest. But it involves these these organizations called cannabis churches and whether they're real churches or whether they're just sort of glorified dispensaries. Well, I have a lot. I, I've been to the Agora Temple over here on Melrose, and it's cool. It is what it is. You, like the sweater? <laughs> no, I think that's Angora. No, oh. uh, there, it's a different spelling. We won't go into the spelling of Agora. And I thought it was Angora sweaters. I could be wrong. No, no I think that's you're right. That's a mid-century reference. we got to do better, man. We whip out our bongs, man, and go, <laughs> okay, boomer. Um <laughs> And yeah, you get like a volcano bag, uh, you pay five bucks and you you take part of the sacrament. And you know, these articles like these, I think it's interesting. I don't want to always be the anti-establishment person, but the New York Times or whatever call into question what is worship is, it's kind of ridiculous to me because worship is so personal. And I do think cannabis is sacramental, I, I do, sacramental, not sacramental, which has very good pot. But I think that, uh, I think it's... <laughs> It's going to look bad five years from now is what I mean to say. But it is an interesting legal issue. Yes, I mean, it is. Do you want to go more on that part? Y you know, I mean, it's not just about drugs. It's like, you know, anyone can call them, if anyone can call themselves a religion, they can be exempt from taxes. But don't you think you like have that? to have the characteristics of a church in order to qualify? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert, <laughs> but, but they, 
you, you know, the law draws the line somewhere. Right. I mean, I've been a Jehovah's Witness. I think there are lots of things in faith that you can question. And I believe, I think I believe in cannabis more than I believe in Jehovah. I, <laughs> I don't mean to say that. I don't want to go to, well, they don't see the Jehovah's Witnesses don't have L, so I'm cool, man. <laughs> um, no, I just think it's it's just very old school. Now to something um, a little more technical. Let's uh, shift to, to our conversation with, with Chris Beals. Yeah, let's do that. Here's Chris Beals, CEO of Weed Maps. So, um, Chris Beals, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, so you're you're the CEO of um, Weed Maps, which is a, a very well known organization. But why don't we we start out by you telling us what Weed Maps is and and how you became CEO of it? Weed Maps started eleven years ago. I think really focused on what was the Weed Maps community. We know what people who use Weed Maps now look like, but who who were the people? Yeah, it was it was Prop Two One Five and medical. So the co-founders of the company uh, had experience both with the uh, medical practices and and sort of the recommendation system, and were both sort of medical users themselves. But then also the Prop Two One Five dispensary. So eleven years ago. Um, it was really a focus uh, with the founding in California on Prop 215 operators and medical recommendations and sort of that, um, you know, I think the part that people forget about a lot, which was, you know, doctors nervous about would giving a rec invalidate their medical license and things like that. Um, and then moving over, you know, as, uh, you know, kind of the next market was Colorado and it was the same thing. It was pre-adult use and it was really around the, the medical market and recommendations um, although Colorado had a formal licensing system. And that was really the start. But I think the core element of when we started, I think that the big differentiator was an emphasis on what the pricing was, what the photos of the products were, what what was in stock, what was in an inventory, because that's really, and continues forward to this day, is really a, a very important thing. I mean, this is, for all intents and purposes, tracking cannabis and showing what's there is kind of like trying to track heirloom tomatoes at the farmer's market. <laughs> what's the difference between then and now? You, you made it seem like it was very special to do it back then. Uh, I think it was, it was less that it was a difference between then and now, except I think that it, that was a fundamental difference, was that the company didn't just focus on saying, well, here's a Prop 215 shop or here's the location, but went deep on trying to give strain information or pricing or real-time menus. And so going more into the information direction and sort of giving information on, on what the store actually had, because at the time then and still now, you'd have a lot of times people were driving an hour to get to the nearest dispensary. Right. That's forgotten sometimes. So um, tell us about what Weed Maps is now and, and what you do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, frankly, that whole, that whole nexus of needing to show data and information of where products could be found, what was in stock at the time, 
I think directionally has guided a lot of where we've gone is we've we've expanded to really focus at, at this point, I think, more and more on being a SaaS and data company. And so that's included that things like- software as a service. Yes. So like our point of sale software offering was the first expansion. So we expanded to point of sale software with MMJ menu back in 2013. Um, and then that's transitioned to WM Retail, which we just launched in Oklahoma uh, in beta about a month and a half ago. You're best known as- the Yelp of weed, but, but that like, you know, like a lot of tech companies, those kinds of descriptions aren't really adequate for, for what the company actually does. Yeah. At this point we're we're essentially providing a suite of, of software data management and, and sort of, I think, compliance solutions that run up and down the supply chain. So I think with our core listing business, that necessitated the need for there to be increasingly real-time information, rich pricing info, lab data. And so that led us to doing integrations with a number of laboratories. Um, That led to us also building out integrations with most of the point-of-sale systems in the industry so that people could could update their menus. And then we launched our own point-of-sale software as well. Um, Following on to that, we launched our brands platform that lets brands list and manage their SKUs. And yes, they can promote those, but it's managing that inventory data then lets them um, verify or allows retailers to say, well, I carry this product and gives brands the ability to to verify or not verify those products, which enables consumers searching via that pathway. We we leverage that same sort of inventory data into a whole, our wholesale exchange platform, which we launched into beta in California and now Oklahoma. And that enables people on the, the up supply chain side, distributors, manufacturers, cultivators, retailers, to see compliant lab tested products, but then also see all the other information that's difficult, like the license information of the counterparty, um, the product photos, weight information, all that, and sort of create a, a wholesale marketplace that has kind of that compliance information or that sort of transactional security built into it. In addition to that, Taking sort of the live menus and the work we were doing with POS, both our own and then third-party POS, we launched an orders and logistics platform that lets retailers um, receive orders either through their Weed Maps page or through their own web page. Um, but the secret sauce to that is the back-end logistics that lets them comply with all of the delivery requirements, which vary from state to state, but things like um, there's real-time GPS tracking via Android and iOS apps, the ability to uh, store those historic route logs as California requires, uh, pick and pack flow so that you can prevent your dispatcher from putting more than $5,000 worth of product in the trunk, which is the trunk loading limit in California, or for people using it in Oregon, that would be $3,000. And so really what what we're doing is building out a suite of easy-to-use software where we take a lot of these sort of either complex data pain points or complex regulatory pain points and try and have them solved by design. So for instance, as opposed to having to go and tell your delivery dispatcher, hey, make sure you don't put more than $5,000 worth of product in the trunk, the software actually stops you from loading more than 5,000 in the trunk or at least digitally doing so. Is this suite of software, is that combined with what probably most people think of as your core offering of the, the Yelp for Weed service? Um, a lot of that works seamlessly with that system, but it, it's sort of it's sort of separated or uh, from from that. So there are some people who use some of those software components who don't use the core piece. So, for instance, on the brand side, 
Um, there's people around the uh, the wholesale exchange side. There's people up the supply chain who maybe don't have a brand page or sort of have a front-facing brand who are still using that wholesale exchange functionality. Um, so there's been an increasing, I think, divorce between those two. Um, and the other thing is, is that it, it's not a, a walled garden that, that we're building. And so we're increasingly working with third-party software providers, whether they be inventory management systems or POSs or uh, lab information management systems or LIMS to, to aggregate and pull that data and then also push data or transactions back to them. So I mean, somewhere in here seems buried the idea, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but it's just the way the world works, that um, sort of the, the core, sort of the original core idea of, of weed maps isn't as necessary as it used to be. I mean, I, I first, I think I first heard of weed maps before I even was writing about weed in like 2012 or something like that, where there was a journalist, I think Devin Leonard, who's a really good journalist, and he talked about weed maps in LA at that time. And, you know, at the time, sort of finding a dispensary was a, was a bit of a chore. Um, if not in LA, then then certainly in other places. And and Weed Maps provided a, a valuable service in that regard. And that is not as necessary as it used to be. Well, or, or actually, I'd say it's it's just as necessary as as ever. I think increasingly, though, what we found and what we're reacting to is to do it right, given the amount of regs, and also I think the fluidity of inventory at, at retailers. It increasingly has to be powered by live data or live software. It, the, the idea of sort of manually doing this or manually tracking it is increasingly becoming impossible. And I think, um, you know, I think that's in terms of what excites me or interests me about it. I think that's, that's one of the unique things is, is behind this, you have a non-shelf stable agricultural product, and there's not really any good example in any other industry, whether it's like dairy or yogurt or vegetables or that sort of thing, where where there's actually really good software systems for tracking and showing people what's in stock and where, if it's something that, you know, has seasonality to it or comes in and out of stock. And so I think really a lot of what we've done, I, I think, draws inspiration from and builds off of that core functionality. And that's as strong as ever. I think given the fact that I think the whole idea of, and this is maybe a bit far afield, but the idea that the whole regulate cannabis like alcohol is a myth. And I think we regulate cannabis somewhere between plutonium and opioids. <laughs> um, for us to get that data and be a good, I think, partner to these businesses increasingly necessitates that we build a bunch of compliance pieces in it as well, just because what we're seeing is, you know, with our software, it's, it's used in almost every legal state or some parts of our suite. And that the, the, the sort of what you see in California with the pace of regulatory change, that's what's happening in other states too. And, and frankly, you need some form of soft for, software or scalable system to, as a business owner, I think, to be able to uh, just keep up with the regs and keep your head above water. Hey, I'm going to start asking the questions about the illicit market. <laughs> you ready for that? My, my my question was leading leading into that. Well, Did you yeah, see that? It's always nice. To, <laughs> well, I think I felt it more than I thought. It. That's how. You, that's what happens when you work together too long. Um, so explain what the uh, the WMID numbers was the uh, the sort of unique internal qualifier that got sort of exposed in the spring. I, that's my way into asking about how's business. I guess. <laughs> Uh, uh, so I think you're talking about the the WMID back in early 2018. 2018, yeah. Yeah. So all weed maps listings 
and whether they be brand, retailer, et cetera, have a WMID number. Uh, and so I think what the confusion was is when the regs came out with the format of the ID number was about three weeks before the, the beginning of 2018 in the system. And so to enable the engineering team to get something that was there, uh, we effectively took the internal WMID field and cloned it and then made it publicly visible in the front end as a workaround to get past yeah, I mean, essentially trying to to have something that worked with the regs when January 1, 2018 hit. And so there's still WMID numbers. They're on every listing. It's just now we've had, you know, time to build it out and change the field to say license number and that sort of thing. Right. Well, I asked about it because there's a sense of, and you know, rightly held or not, that Weed Maps gets away with stuff. And do you think that, that was the sense of that well, since beginning? Okay, if I can back up just a little bit and say sort of the big controversy around Weed Maps this year was that until recently, when you changed your position as of, I think, the end of this year, you served businesses that were not licensed in California. And this created a lot of resentment towards you from businesses that, that were licensed and felt were you felt and felt you were supporting businesses that weren't paying taxes and were charging less money because they weren't good actors. Well done, Alex. Right? And now and now you've changed. You're and you're you're sort of either you've stopped supporting them or you're about to stop supporting them. So can you sort of walk us through this story from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I I think if 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 there was any error we made, I think it was the mistake of thinking that um you know, following on to Prop 64, I think with the drafting of Prop 64, there's this idea of local control and that local governments would, would you know, be able to issue licenses that would, you know, engender having a cannabis industry there. And I think perhaps, you know, hindsight is 2020, but I think the grand mistake was thinking that because local government or populations and cities voted yes on Prop 64, of course, the local governments would issue licenses. Obviously, what we saw to be the case was the opposite of that, where you'd have cities, and you still do, that have 60, 70 percent yes votes on Prop 64 that have yet to issue licenses. Sure. And I think to some degree coming into 2018, we just assumed it would sort out in the wash and everybody would get licensed. You know, I think when you look at other markets, that's happened and happened pretty quickly. So you look at Oklahoma, which opened in late 2018. And at this point, they have over 2,400 retail licenses or three times the retail licenses of California. That is crazy. And there's no unlicensed market. Uh, and that's not, you know, and so, and this, similarly, we saw the same thing sort itself out pretty quickly. It is crazy. I mean, but it's, it's also, when you talk to these operators there, you're seeing them, you know, when we go out and send product and engineering teams to survey and look at the software and how it's being used, business is good. They're happy. Um, and I think, but they also don't have this mentality of like, well, I got one of these like golden tickets and now I'm lobbying for like a monopoly in my city. Right. Hey, uh, so, okay. Let me ask just because, just because you came on in March, right? As uh, you stepped up to CEO and you had to be thinking, this is what's on the table as we move into 2020. I mean, this year you had to have a strategy in place. I'm imagining, right? Yeah. I mean, I think when I came in and took over as CEO, I think um, I, I think I, a lot of what I was doing, you know, built on on my predecessors. 
but also I was, you know, to some degree have been setting a new path and a new direction for, for weed maps. Um, And so, you know, I think in that regard, I think one of the realities we saw coming into this year is that um, licensing feels like it's starting to open up, but we're, we're starting to see at least a cognizance and an awareness that, Hey, all these guys we're calling illegal or unlicensed are, all of the Prop 215 operators, and it seems very quickly that what we've been seeing is folks who get a license then turn and try and slam the door shut on the people behind them. And I think we're starting to see a cognizance and an awareness that cities need to issue more licensing. License density is the solution to the unlicensed market. But I think what we've seen is is that increasingly, I think for the, the truly bad actors, I, you know, I think what we've seen is that increasingly they're gravitating towards things like Yelp or Snapchat or Instagram or Google Logal or Craigslist or that sort of thing. And I, I think the messy middle of what you're left with is a lot of people who are, you know, in the case of LA, waiting for whatever's going on with the social equity program to unfold and sitting on leases or, you know, they're trying to apply or wait for their city to open up. I think you've seen this in Pasadena where the unlicensed shops qualified a ballot initiative so that they can be given a license because the city chose to issue all its licenses to, to groups like MedMen and other groups that had not been operating within the city. Um, and I, it's the Pasadena example, I think, in and of itself is is really intriguing. I mean, just today or yesterday, I think the city announced that it was suing itself to invalidate the ballot initiative, which had been qualified by these dispensaries. Um, (laughs) I had not heard that one. (laughs) Suing itself? That's funny. Exactly. It basically was its ploy that if it sued the city clerk, its own city clerk, and said that, you know, the clerk didn't properly vet this ballot initiative to license the unlicensed shops, that it could potentially invalidate. And it's asking a judge to move quickly on it. But I, I think that's, really what we've seen and where hopefully things are going in California is people are starting to realize that the, the problem's not the unlicensed market. It, it's the fact that there's just not licensing opportunities. And you have a group of, of very wealthy generally haves trying to close the door on have nots, which I think both flies in the face of the folks who built the industry under Prop 215. But it, it definitely, to some degree, is continuing the war on drugs. And I think actively, I think, pushing back, I think, some of the goals that were aimed to be advanced by legalization and also things like the social equity programs that we're seeing cities start to launch. Just talking about California now, are you going to not have any more unlicensed dispensaries listed on your platform? Uh, So at the end of this year, we've actually been sending increasingly uh, frequent reminders telling people to enter their license numbers. I think one of the things we found in that process is that um, despite what the state regs say, uh, a lot of folks just don't enter their license number on the website. And so a lot of it has actually been people hmm. getting around to entering their license numbers, um, which has been interesting to see. I think, you know, there's just a, I think a broader theme of that where we're seeing that a lot of the regs in California, because the market, I think, is just barely trying to keep its head above water, are not fully enforced. And I think the putting your license number on your advertisements, whether they be digital or physical, is definitely one of those requirements. And so part of it is an education process where, um, you know, I've heard anecdotes from the sales team where people have said, well, uh, you know, I've been advised that I I shouldn't put my license number on my listing or sort of other very bizarre stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I I don't know why that is, but, you know, and then they put their license number on because we, we tell them to. But I think it's also... And do you verify their license numbers? 
Well, at this point, we're telling them to put the license number on and then, uh, yeah, essentially it, to the extent somebody reports something or says this is invalid and we've had some outreach where we've dealt with that, we'll then pull them off. Um, I think the other thing that's a little bit tough is I think we're... So you're not actively verifying them? It, it, I mean, in short, we're, I guess to put it, to put it succinctly, uh, the licensing website at the BCC, I think, is sufficiently difficult that I don't even know if that's possible. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, I want to shift the subject just a little bit. We talk so much about California. You mentioned Oklahoma, and I know that you're around, you're a presence in a lot of places, even where you're not necessarily doing business, business yet. What, what can you tell me about the sort of activism that you're doing nationally? And not just necessarily activism, but, you know. The, the way you're being present around America? Well, so a lot of it, I, you know, a lot of what we're doing, so we're, our software and services are used in essentially every legal state. Um, and so a lot of our early role was educating, pushing governments to open. And a lot of that was just doing comparative work of showing new states or new local jurisdictions that wanted to open, uh, who generally had a lot of questions. Hey, here's a summary or here's a background on how other states are doing it. And so for instance, in East Coast states that were trying to think about tax regimes, we did a lot of work actually um, that was unfortunately guided by showing them how bad the California tax system or how quickly local taxes that multiplicatively layer on throughout the supply chain can lead to these you know, insanely high net effective tax rates at the end of the day. So there is that. Um, we also did a, a fair amount of work with um, helping states that were trying to navigate or, or educating them on what was being done with things like social equity programs or for, for states that I think had a bit more of a split legislature of how they could kind of navigate the waters of um, record expungement versus uh, prisoner release versus, you know, the other options for dealing with sort of how do you redress the historical harms of the war on drugs um, and then getting into other more esoteric stuff like um, you know, why they should allow delivery if they want to tamp down the illegal market. And I think kind of the core element of what we were really working on was for, for jurisdictions that want to open up and legalize, what is a workable system that will make the illegal market as small as possible? And I think, you know, I don't, I don't think we can take, um, you know, I won't, I won't make any claims as to how much of the credit we can take, but I think that our advocacy in that regard has been effective. And I think that we've seen a lot of states start to open with models that have made, you know, I think the, the problems California's had with generating enough uh, licenses to combat the illegal market, sort of a, unfortunately, a California-specific issue. Right. Um, and I think we've also seen places like Massachusetts and Illinois, I think, come up with um, more, I guess, more, not necessarily more effective, but more expeditious paths towards having social equity programs. Yeah, I would say that's true. We have to go, but I want to ask one more question on the way out. Uh, we talk about layoffs. You've laid some people off recently. And the tax thing that's supposed to hit on the first, the taxes that are supposed to hit California businesses, is it really as bad as it looks? Or is this just the first time cannabis has had to see reductions of that nature? Um, I, so it's interesting. I think a couple of thoughts on that. One is we did a bunch of research on tax rate versus retail density in terms of affecting the licensed market share. And retail access and the number of retail licenses has almost a perfect correlation to illegal market rate or reducing illegal market rate. And there's not a super great correlation between taxes. 
You know, and I think we think part of that reason is because as markets emerge and if you do issue enough licenses, wholesale prices drop enough that these percentage-based taxes are proportionately smaller and consumers aren't as put off by them. I think, look, there's no two ways about it. The, the, the tax hike that, that, CDTFA is, or, um, that, that CDFA is doing uh, at the end of the year is just optically really bad, but it's just fundamentally as bad for the, in, for the industry generally trying to get its feet under it. Um, that being said, I think that I don't see them necessarily backing down from that, but I think one of the easiest ways to help solve that is to increase the number of licenses or sort of help increase the amount of supply and bring some degree of stability to the wholesale pricing. Cause I think part of the reason they re-gauged those tax amounts was because of how wonky and disjointed the supply chain is right now in California. Right, right. That's a great answer, man. Hey, I wish you um, lower taxes in 2020 and more open dispensaries. How about that? More licenses. That that sounds great. I am uh, I am really hopeful that that happens. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, dude. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thanks so much to both of you. All right, that's our that's our show. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News and email us at hello at weedweek.net. So we got a we got an interesting tweet that I'm just going to quickly mention, and it's sort of maybe from like a, a socialist bot or something, <laughs> but it's Twitter handle L8N8 underscore T3, and it's they tweeted in reference to a recent episode with union organizer Jackie Cornejo, and it, the tweet reads at least in part I can't even tell if it's the whole tweet. It says, hashtag podcast summary, clue, rise up. It's their cultural power and precarious position historically. Yeah, that's one of those things. I can't tell whether that's pure poetry or a bot. Maybe a little of both. I don't know. Anyway, keep them coming, bots and humans. Bots stay away. But we get some great notes, I got to say. Yeah. What do you think that was? I don't think that's a bot number. That's an abbreviation, isn't it? L8N8. You know, like the license plates approach. We'll figure it out some other time. We'll ponder that tweet another time. And you'll talk to us next week because that's what we do, right? Yeah. All right. So for lots more Weed News, you can sign up for the Weed Week newsletters, uh, Weed Week, Weed Week Canada, and Weed Week California, all at weedweek.net, and they're all free. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Alicia Beyer wrote our theme music. And we'll see you here next week. Later. Bye.